Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. The world's longest running motorsport magazine show, Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. everybody and welcome along to Midweek Motorsport here on RSL1. It's just after 8 o'clock on a Wednesday evening. Uh, Tim Gray not with us today so I'm driving the uh, studio up in London uh, remotely here which is all just a weeny bit scary if I'm absolutely honest. Uh, But on a packed programme tonight we will have some of the usual features at the very least as we delve into a busy weekend of motorsport last weekend with the Indy 500 and of course with our 24 hour race at uh, the 24 hour series race the 12 hours of Bruno and of course there was a small matter of a drive around the Principality as well the Monaco Grand Prix uh, was on uh, last weekend as well Uh, we'll be looking forward to a very busy weekend of motorsport coming up as we uh, preview the IMSA Detroit Grand Prix on Saturday. We've got Le Mans Test Day with Mobile One, Radio Le Mans 91.2 FM, uh, live from the track and at the track, if you see what I mean, uh, on Sunday. Uh, and plenty of other racing as well to come uh, this weekend. Plus all the big stories of the week. Uh, that's all to come. And your questions, points of order, matters arising, please, to at Specutainment as well. Uh, if you don't mind, that would be very good. Uh, we welcome, as always, we welcome uh, your input onto the programme uh, tonight. Shall we kick off then with a little bit of uh, housekeeping? To start with, uh, Christopher Matthias is all hunkered down listening live to Midweek Motorsport as another afternoon of stormy weather is forecast for where he is. Oh, you'll have to tell me again where you are, Christopher. I think you're in Central... Are you in Central Europe somewhere? Uh, I, I have to say, I can't remember. My apologies. Um, a tornado south-southeast of where... I, oh, no, you're not, are you? Touchdown yesterday evening. All right. So that probably then is in the uh, the US somewhere because I know that uh, Dayton, Ohio uh, was uh, pretty awful uh, yesterday and uh, we wish all the best to people there. Christopher, wish, wish you all the best. Uh, Jeff Doty is, uh, apologies for absence tonight, uh, watching the footy tonight, downloading the podcast tomorrow, ready for the drive to Le Mans on Saturday morning for the test weekend, 91.2 FM of course. Uh, uh, sadly, airfare as well from Chris Chris Alphaby, um, as he's working a night shift but can't wait uh, for 
the podcast uh, later on or tomorrow. Uh, and ooh, I have to scroll up a bit because there's a lot of tweets about one particular thing that just happened just before tonight's show. Oliver Giles says, looking forward to tonight's show. Kevin Payne, AFA. He's up to date with God uh, podcasts, though. Listening to tonight's on Friday as he drives down uh, to Torquay. He'll have the fi- uh, finger on the volume uh, to turn down Nick Damon when we talk about uh, our top story tonight. Uh, Sarah Rigby tuned in listening. Uh, also, hello to uh, not only Carol Bring, but Kevin Bring together uh, this week uh, for the show. Kevin, nice to know you're back up at home. Uh, and hello to McLaren Philadelphia tuning in live. Um, Detroit week, memory serves the first official race of a McLaren 720GT3 on a street course, courtesy of Compass Racing. Uh, Jet is uh, he- heading down to the airport, so airfares for him. Uh, off to Bristol, Bristol at the weekend. John McCarthy says, definitely have to going to turn Nick down when the top story is mentioned tonight. Um, Kevin Payne commenting on our Fiat Ducato Luton van, which will be setting off for Le Mans tomorrow with brilliant Bob Dawson. Um, more places, uh, more space than some people's home, he says. Uh, AFAs for Andrew Muggeridge, you know, the Chelsea fan tonight. And no apologies from Jules. Uh, driving home from the other job. Uh, as Jack Gabriel says, uh, I'm planning my N24 trip. Chris Chadwick, my best friend, racing in the Miltech GT86. So that's all going along nicely. And Michael Denny, it, t- enjoying the Italian Sink Terra Coast. Uh, spotted Lawrence Stroll in Portofino yesterday. Uh, cricket at Chelmsford for Gufflemon. Uh, home in time for... Uh, for the show. Uh, lots of people watching the European final. Uh, Jackie is listening. Miss Jack's listening live from London. Um, joining shortly, but on a shush call, says Andrew... Alexander Orkin. Andy Blackmore finishing a certain spotless guide and looking for orange and blue balloons drifting from Indy. That is Jonathan Frank uh, this evening. So, uh, that is our bits and pieces sorted out uh, let's get to our top story this evening and for that we need to welcome uh, our formula one correspondent nick damon good evening nick good evening john good evening everyone how is everybody this fine wednesday yeah it's a bit damp uh, here in the it uk is. um I, no cheer from you because i didn't mention formula one of course and that's because our top story isn't formula one Surely not. Is, well, it, is it Formula Renault in Northern Europe? No, this is a story that literally broke an hour or two ago. And I've I've had to read this twice to make right. sure that I got it right. Um, and I, I'm going to read this to you. Mm-hmm. Let, first of all, let's set the story. Let's set the scene. We are in a period at the moment, are we not, Mr. Damon, of great... Uh, of great tumult and turmoil in <laughs> sports car racing at the very top level, at the World Endurance Championship and yes. Le Mans level. We are yes. waiting, hope, hoping, praying for a new set of regulations that are going to absolutely, <laughs> totally... Anything, anything at all. Just a regulation will do. Don't mind what it is. 
Well, you say that. We want something that can pull the sports car, both sides, all sides of the sports car firmament together. We want consensus. We want something that people can get behind and take forward. And it doesn't matter whether we're in or out or shaking it all about. It's That's what we're looking for at the moment. And in the midst of this, the ACO technical director, Thierry Bouvet, has been interviewed for the Automobile de la Club, uh, Club de la West site, the SEO's site. He said, uh, and uh, talking about EOT and BOP. Yes. Now, um, equalisation of technology, equalisation of technology um, ha- happens in the LMP categories. Um and equivalence between, he says, equivalence between naturally aspirated and turbocharged engines has been achieved in all races. Between hybrid and non-hybrid cars, we have approached our goal but come up against the maximum physical limits of non-hybrid cars. Engine powers couldn't be increased anymore, nor car mass reduced, as EOT is less favourable to the hybrids at Le Mans than elsewhere, for the reasons explained earlier, uh, which they talked about that. They're quite quite confident that will the non-hybrids will be very close for this super season finale is it satisfactory no of course not we would have liked closer races between the hybrid and non-hybrid cars we're already working on a slightly different system for next season which could also take race results into consideration can you tell us what you have in store we're continuing to work and have suggested a success ballot system that mm. seems to be a good solution. Now, this is where everybody, when I tweeted that earlier on, said I would have to turn you down a little bit. Mm. Can't First of all, do you, can you think of a world championship that is employed on four wheels that is employed success ballast? Well, touring cars. Did they? I couldn't yeah. remember whether they had and they hadn't. But that wasn't a proper world championship anyway. At that time. No, I mean to me, it's not a proper world championship. Right. You can't you can't have a proper world championship if you're going to play it, if it's going to be entertainment racing. Right. So same thing. So first of all, Thierry, uh, do you agree with the fact that they've done a pretty good job on turbocharged and non-turbocharged no. engines? Oh no, no, yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. The 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 LMP1 um, privateer cars have been balanced quite well, and that's been quite a challenge for them. In fairness, and because of course the cars have massively improved over time as well. It's been about their, their head around them in the short period they've run them. So, it is the yeah, first series, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's the first I, year of the series. I don't think I would I would say they've had any issues with the with well obvious ones with that with that. Oh, and we've just used them, lost them for a moment. Hello. Yeah, you're there. Yeah. All right. You faded on me. All right. Uh, Weird. Right, that was very odd. Um, <laughs> so okay, so uh, generally speaking, um, good or well done. Never easy to balance turbocharged and normally aspirated engines, Nick. But generally speaking, that has been done. Hybrids and non-hybrids, um, that hasn't happened, and they have accepted that. But, but let me stop you there. They never wanted to balance them. Right. I thought the whole thing was that Toyota were going to have this advantage all the time. Right. They were going to have the theoretical half second a lap and the extra lap of fuel at. Um, Le Mans, that was written into the rules. Obviously, it turned out they had about four seconds of lap advantage, um, and they've only ever tried to, to reduce it to get it a bit closer, but they've never ever tried to balance them. I mean, they might be looking to do it for next year, but these, this super season, it's it's always been a, uh, a, a Toyota benefit, isn't it? Mm. Um, so, so, obviously, then, 
Um, given that, and with Toyota committed to a further year in twenty, uh, in nineteen to twenty, then success balance mm-hmm. is the ideal answer. Then, well, they've got themselves in a rock and a hard place, really, haven't they? Because the the LMP hybrid car which Toyota has produced um, as a manufacturer is, is very, very good indeed. And it's obviously aerodynamically very clever and it's got great drivers and it's very reliable. And you've got a number of privateer companies playing catch up and they've, they've made a few breaks and given a few a few um, odds and sods. So the only thing they can really, I suppose, I suppose if they want to have an even championship and they want to keep some interest in the, uh, the championship for the next year with one uh, manufacturer, they want to give it a bit of chance. And then the only way they can do that is by they have said themselves is by slowing the Toyotas down. Um, and they appear not to want to do it in a blanket way, which would be fine because that's within the equivalent of technology. They can stick 100 kilos in the car and just say we're equivalenting your equivalizing your uh, hybridness, but they decide they want to do it with, with results based. They, what they're doing, you're we're equivalizing your hybridness, are we? Yes, exactly. That's what yes. you have to do. Okay. Well, 100 kilograms would probably do quite nicely, actually. You know, but um, you know, they, they, now they want to do it on success balance, which is, which is, then also gives you an issue where, all right, we, we all sit there going, all right, okay, that's great. So say it's 50 kilograms. So uh, knock yourself out. Toyota one, they got 50 kilograms. What, what if what happened in um, in Silverstone happened and they got kicked out? Suddenly you have a couple of the uh, the LMP1 normal cars uh, with 50 kilograms. They'd lose by an hour and a half. Hmm. And you never have success bias in a proper world championship. You don't reverse grids either, whilst we're on the subject, but carry on. Can, can, I, <laughs> can I mention my misgivings about success ballast? I've always thought it was a rather crude way of balancing performance. On sprint races, it sort of works sometimes. Um, it do, sometimes it doesn't, and you always... All you're going to do then is promote people... Um, trying. I mean, it, in short sprint races, you promote people... Um, something like the British Touring Car Championship, people play the success ballast game, don't they? So they don't get uh, three good results on a weekend so that they start the next weekend, the last race of the weekend, they get a decent finish, but they, they want to take some weight off. Uh, what worries me is you've got prototype racing cars here, uh, one, uh, both of which have been homologated to a minimum weight. Um, and uh, those weights that you'll get as close to those as possible. That's the way of the world nowadays. Do you remember when racing cars used to be maximum weights because it was thought that the bigger and heavier they were, the better put together they would be. Colin Chapman rather changed all of that. So it's minimum weights now. So you've got cars that are homologated to a minimum weight and nobody in their right mind is going to build a car heavier than it needs to be. So things like suspension mounts, and steering arms, and, 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 and steering columns, and all of those things, those are built to take the weight of the car when it's full of fuel, and no more. If you start putting 50, 60, 100, 150, I mean, we well, don't know how thing, much yet, well, no, it would need and, to be and the brakes amount. have to stop it, and the tyres yeah, have to turn it. It would need to be a significant amount to make a difference. It's not like these little five kilograms here and six kilograms there. To make a significant difference, which they need to do, you, you are looking at 30, 40 kilograms before. Yeah, you know, they put 40 kilograms in a touring car, for goodness sake. Yeah, the LMP1, to make a difference, is going to need at least 40 kilos. Mm. Um, lots of comments on this. Let me go through a couple. I mean, this, this has literally just dropped in, um, what, half an hour, 40 minutes before uh, the. 
before the show started. Andrew Muggeridge started off with, he said, I'm no engineer, John, but I don't get why they always go for slowing the quick guys down and not trying to speed up the others. Why not give the non-hybrids more power and or less weight or does that add too much cost? It did say that they felt they'd got the non-hybrids going as fast as they can. I would suggest if you were to ask that question to... Bart Hayden or any of the other guys who were running them, um, the fact that they have got still got fuel flow meters and a fuel foot flow um, calculation to do, that they'd probably say that wasn't uh, the case. But Andrew, I don't disagree with you there. Ben says, um, how about a minimum speed for hybrid deployment? You'd end up with the same sp- top speed, but no longer have massive acceleration. The Toyotas have exiting the corners or getting through traffic at a push of a button. That's actually already uh, used to happen. It used to be above, was it 60 miles an hour? And and now they're talking about 120k, I think. Um, certainly in the Peugeot, Audi, Toyota days. Yeah, there was a limit for it came, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Andrew Crossfire says, um, "It's I know it's too late at the moment, but is there any legs in a power weight balance on future cars if they ditch hypercar and go down prototype route? 850, 850 kilo for for um, normally aspirated and a, a thousand horsepower, a thousand kilo for hybrid. Sorry, for normally non-hybrid, should I say?" Um, when they pegged back fuel stints for non-hybrids at Le Mans last year, it's obvious that Toyota has a fuel and power exa- uh, advantage. It's not a rocket science that you're not going to get equivalents there. Um, AJ Smith asking the same question. Is there any precedent of success Palace being used in FIA World Championship? And I did think it might have been World Touring Cars. Uh, and how do they deal with the blue riband of an end-of-season event that's worth one and a half times the point and 15 times the glory, he says. Uh, Mike Smith says, I've said it before, it's on blue in the face, tweeting at Speculatement. EOT is nigh impossible when you're running two different powertrain setups. It's not the same and quite difficult to make it so. One will always have an advantage and one will always beat the other. Uh, yeah, well, uh, let's... Uh, hang on, there's one there, the other side of it. Not sure why everyone is so upset by the wor- word success palace. If you want true form of motorsport, um, but I can't think of a true form of motorsport in 20 years. Look at Super GT. Don't they have success palace and they've worked well? Okay, that's the other side of it. Uh, this from Alex Brundle. Why don't we get a set of more spec, more affordable, light hybrid, manufacturer style prototypes on the grid, run by competent factory and customer teams, and make some great endurance racing, please? Group C for Generation 21. Regards, mm, the drivers. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's got a point because the whole light hybrid thing is currently in a massive circle of despair in America, isn't it? As but, they can't well, decide what light means and what's what's heavy enough to influence to 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 attract to attract various factories, but light enough not to put off privateers. So it's a it's a absolute basket case at the moment uh, yeah, um, I'll, I'll reserve judgment on the whole IMSA thing and until I've heard from more than one manufacturer that Marshall was right on it with, with Ford Ford are in a bit of got themselves into a bit of a pickle at the moment with what they're doing with their sports car programme and um, it's Marshall Pro was reporting on racer.com that, that he um that they'd wanted a, a more uh, substantial amount of power to come from the hybrid. It, it, this is in DPI too, so it's related, but it's a different story, but interesting. Um, Nick Holland says, how about tyres that suit non-hybrids but are a compromise for the Toyota? 
Um, How did you do that? The win-win on this would be to adjust the LMP1 H reg to be akin to the future reg for height cars, allowing Toyota tester drivetrain that would be future useful in the future rather than dragging dead weight around. Um, so what do you put? Do you put the Toyota on cross plies in or something? Well, yes, possibly. Um, fewer fewer tyre compounds, you could say. Uh, ALMS is starting this year. Success Palace in the um, effectively two-year-old chassis on spec tyres. Well. Yes, I suppose mm-hmm. that is right. It is. Uh, it's with so much. Listen, forget about whether you believe in success ballast or not, and we know that Nick certainly doesn't. But Nick, the question. It's fine. It's fine for entertainment racing. It's not fine for proper racing. But, but Nick, is this the right time to even be talking about something like that when the the series, the regulatory body in question? hasn't even managed to get a set of regulations out this is they're talking about fiddling with the current regulations for next year and how they do things they haven't managed to get the regulations sorted out that they need at the end of to be putting into force at the end of next season no i mean, I mean the, the, yeah the aco and wec is in a bit of a uh, a bit of a tough tough trough at the moment they've got you know everyone is very unhappy with the lack of coherence or even announce on the hypercar regulation all they're having at the moment is people withdrawing from gte um and they haven't and they and they're pretty aware at the moment they're going to have a relatively uninteresting uh, premier class for the wec next year unless they can find a way of limiting the Toyota that Toyota will accept so um yeah they are in the rock and the hard place um <laughs> but they're not really covering themselves with glory because they 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 don't won't come down and make a decision that people can get behind um this is a very minor a very minor um what's worth it misstep in my opinion perhaps necessary necessary evil in our opinions compared to the uh, the, the massive elephant in the room which is a you know it's a it's a mammoth in the room not an elephant but they haven't got anything for 15 months time not like 2022 which you know other people are arguing about is 15 months mm. Yeah, okay. Um, the other story that Nick mentioned there, as you're listening to Midweek Motorsport Series 14, episode 21, is the uh, confirmation of a couple of things from Ford. One, as we mentioned, at Mid-Ohio in our IMSA programme, they'll be running four tribute liveries, Le Mans tribute liveries, at the Le Mans 24 hours, and obviously they'll be out uh, in front of the public for the first time in competition, as it were, or at least on the track, uh, on Sunday. You'll hear all about it on uh, Mobile One Radio Le Mans, 91.2 FM. No pictures from Le Mans, no pictures in the booth either for Blackpool, Johnny Johnny Palmer and Joe Bradley, uh, who will be taking you through that particular uh, weekend. A couple of sessions, morning and afternoon, uh, and around the world on RS1, of course, the only live broadcast for that. So that bit we kind of knew about. And the withdrawal of the team from the Chip Ganassi uh, Ford Racing Team UK f- at the end of Le Mans this year. Joining BMW, who've only been there for two years but one season. Uh, at least Ford, they came, they saw, they conquered in the first year in 16 on their anniversary they extended the program a wee bit but now they've called time in it not a real surprise nick but what that leaves next year for the w or this year rather for the wec is aston martin and uh, um aston martin Ferrari and porsche Ford. with works teams 
and Ferrari with semi-works or work-supported teams. Possibly as few as, what, six cars for the season in GTE Pro in the WEC after Le Mans. Yeah, that, that is looking the way. Um, yeah, it, it, it's going to become a very, very LMP2 heavy championship, I would say. Well, LMP2, you see, that's interesting because, you know, we shouldn't say that as a bad thing. Lots okay. of people like prototypes. ELMS has been brilliant on prototypes without LMP1, one might say. And I'm not suggesting we get rid of LMP1 because I think those LMP1 um, non-hybrids are beautiful cars. And I've said this time and time again, if they had been the top class, we'd have been drooling over them, slack-jawed. And maybe we still can with a little bit longer longevity for, for them. But should we be... Should we be? I don't think we should be being down on the fact that that those gaps will be filled. Normally, 34, 35 cars in the WEC, mm-hmm. they'll fill those with P2s easily, won't they? Yeah, it's it's not an issue for us. Not a problem for us, us the fan, us the uh, racing enthusiast. It's a massive problem with the WEC because they ain't because the the uh, P2 teams aren't paying activation money. They're not bringing no, guests along. You know, you've lost Ford. And you've lost uh, BMW, who would be bringing people to most of the rounds to come and enjoy the hospitality, which for which the ACO and WEC are making a markup. That's their problem. They haven't got the the manufacturer the activation cash. Um, racing wise, yeah, six, six decent GTE pros will produce a decent race, no problem at all. Lots of P2s produce a great race, and uh, you know they can get some sort of balance, even though I don't like the concept of balancing it, and just peg back the Toyota slightly. They might get a, a, a more competitive front. Uh, class as well and um, gte am will be gte am as ever but it's again it's this, it's this problem that the wc has is you know get we say about so many series where's the money john um yes does it also open the door for uh possibly corvette to come and do a few races does it open the door to do a combined l gt field and bring the pros and arms together um, maybe with some form of uh, changes in the uh, the sporting regulations to allow that to be I mean we never used to have a GTE arm we used to just have GT2 yeah GT1 and yeah prototype. I, mean, I think it's uh, it's the, it'll put a lot, I can't see GTE getting combined because obviously the AM, the AM drivers like the fact that they are in an AM team and racing for a world championship and they don't want to have six fully pro fully backed teams uh, taking those those places away from them um, there's a number of options for them and again I don't think their sporting situation is the issue that they're going to be dealing with right uh, this is from Dave Alcock uh, the guys are spot on the issue isn't the 1920 rules there's no rules for the 2021 20, uh, season how can teams plan if they have no rules, chassis or budgets to work with? I worry about the private aid teams. The backbone of the endurance will not be able to continue to support WEC. Mm, true. Uh, when are the hypercars entering the field? Says Who Jesse. knows? <laughs> Nobody knows. What's it, a hypercar? If you're going to have LMP2, more LMP2s, can we see more of them in the highlights? If LMP1 isn't feeding oh, oh, oh. the need, give me the action-packed LMP2 field. Fair point. Let's hear yours, your thoughts, please, to at Um Right Turn Lover says, and I'm, I'm you know, I, I don't want this to be terribly negative. I, I'm, I'm asking questions that sometimes um, 
sometimes I don't know the answer to. Quite a lot of the times I don't know the answer to. Um, how many cars did GTE, with how many cars did GTE Pro start at the beginning of WEC? I don't think many more than six. And if memory serves, one of Porsche, uh, possibly both of them, was a privateer entrant. Well, you might, you, there's always an opportunity for Porsche privateers. And one thing I will say, RTL, and I'll agree with you on this, don't worry about GTs for Le Mans because it just means more GTE in the AM categories or the opportunity for Porsche to bring a couple from the States um, Possibly BMW still to bring Rahal Letnam and Lanigan if they're still involved next year. Ben Keating uh, may be able to still run the Ford if they if they still support it uh, in 20 uh, at Le Mans 2020. Um, I, I don't think GTE is going to uh, disappear. Sarah Rigby, as much as we all love uh, the class in WEC, I think quite a lot of people like the GTE class most of all. Shame to see the numbers dwindle, but it would be great if Corvette joined the party. And on an interesting note, any idea where Pierre, why Pierre Fion was at the Indy 500? Was it just movie promotion? It was odd to see him in victory lane there. I have to say, I missed that, but we'll bring that up again later on. Uh, thanks to Simon Gallo, by the way, who I've been swapping some messages with today about the early days of Radio Le Mans. Uh, final thought from you, Nick. Then, obviously, Le Mans is, is not under threat. The Le Mans 24 hours, it doesn't matter what happens or doesn't happen with the regulations. It's not under threat. But is, no. is that article that Marshall mentioned, is the WEC under threat? Is it that bad? Well, they don't sort out some rules for 2021 pretty soon. Uh, sorry, 20, sorry, 2020. Uh, you know, then you've got a, a... Basically, you end up with a a worldwide version of ELMS where you have the same cars going around the world rather than just going into Europe and it gets very expensive and what's the point? And it's, you know, I think they need to have a serious think about where what they're going to do, how they're going to attract people, what they're trying to achieve um, and how they've managed to get it so wrong, to be honest. James Brown says, wondering why P3s aren't featured in WEC. Well, you know, if Toyota disappear from P1 and the P1s become P1, why couldn't you have P1, P2 and P3 and the GT class? I mean, is there room for another prototype class? Not, not well, not really. Two Genetas, two Genetas want to run in WEC next year? Because don't forget the whole point of running in WEC is to get your free, free get your, 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 your included in the mon entry, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Um, and do you think that P3 shouldn't run at Le Mans? Uh, I don't think, I think, I don't think there's any real point. You've got P1 and P2, you don't need P3 running in the, in the main race, no. Right. Okay. Um, I don't think P3s do... Where do P3s do anything as long as that? They don't. They do four hours at uh, ELMS, don't they? Mm. Yeah, good point. I'm sure I'm sure they've done 12. They have done 12-hour races at um, Abu Dhabi, haven't they? Two sixes, yes. Yeah. Two sixes enough. is a bit of a, bit of a tune-up, but... Um... Yeah, it's not part of Burma between the two halves, but I'm sure we'll return to this later on with some of your I, tweets. Yeah, I, I think that you know, I think that the the, the the real problem for the WEC is to work out a way that they can attract people who are going to spend money corporately, uh, um, because that's how they make their money. And you know, these aren't whilst we like to think race meetings are run as charities, they actually have to at least break even. Uh, okay, Nick, uh, thank you for that. So plenty of news there to kick off on WEC and ACO rules uh, racing. Some good news is that 
Uh, we had news earlier on this week from United Autosport that they have moved into the lean twos, the lucky lean twos, Nick, which uh, oh, are, yeah. are just are just tents. It's like Boy Scouts outing. They bought built a kind of a prefab support wall, haven't they? I noticed. Yeah, yeah. looks um, good. Still have no idea how I'm going to get the pit lane for the uh, for the actual reporting, but I always have my spy, Mr. Mr. Jay Bradley, doing it this weekend, so you can tell me how on earth we're going to get in and out. Uh, we mentioned the Ford liveries, a couple of other liveries as well. GMW looking very spiffy. We finally got a proper look at the Wins livery for Ben Keating's car with the big Michelin man on the side as well, which is... Uh, is pretty good, and there was a couple of others as well that came out. And Andy Blackmore's working like the clappers at the moment while he's listening to this uh, to get the WeatherTech Spotless Guide sorted out for Le Mans. Andy, we wish you well uh, with that, sir. Um, what else came out? Oh, we had a couple of prototypes running through the streets of Le Mans with the red, white, and blue, the tricolor of uh, France running through Le Mans yesterday uh, as well, which I thought was uh, very nice. Uh, some good footage of that. And the test weekend is just around the corner. If you're going down there, take your radios, Mobile One 91.2 FM. Use the hashtag Mobile One RLM. And it'll be Johnny Palmer and Joe Bradley who'll be doing the bulk of the broadcasting. Paul Truswell is uh, away on another assignment uh, now he's working full-time in motorsport. We don't get first time, first call on his time. So he's away on Saturday. But I think he'll be back at walking on Sunday and joining in. And, uh, of course, it is a full weekend with Friday and Saturday, RS2 fired up, IMSA Radio with Jeremy Shaw, Shea Adam and me, John Hindoff at the Detroit Grand Prix for IMSA on Friday. And the big race is on Saturday there for sports car enthusiasts. At Specutainment, please, if you... Uh, wouldn't uh, mind. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, let's move on with Nick while we've got him and look back Hello. back at the weekend. You still there? Oh yes. Let's do some Formula One, and for that we. Oh. Ne- well, no, go. You went off early, mate. There. Well, half the wife. Um. Let's let's go to Monte Carlo and some Formula One. Hooray! Hey! Yay! Yay! I'm trying to do a French accent and I lost it halfway through. All right. Okay. I was I was rattling a very expensive uh, some diamond jewellery during that. Were you excellent? Yeah. Was that very expensive, Harir? Well, I got charged 15 euros for sitting down dessert. Ah. Okay. Um, Eve's just paused. 13 minutes ago, Eve. Success, Palace in WEC. Your thoughts on midweek motorsport? There's already 18. <laughs> um, Hopefully they know. Well, well, we'll have a look at that in a, in a wee while. No while. success ballast in F1. There's just success cash. Well, I mean, that is ballast in, in respect. You know, people turn up with suitcases full of it. That helps, doesn't no, it? Yeah, Can yeah. we start with F2? Uh, well, well, yes. Let's yeah, let's talk about the, the marvellous first F2 race. Now, was it just me or did <laughs> the stewards drop a mighty one from a great height that when it hit the ground was big and smelly and all-encompassing. It was. You and I were in Bruno last we weekend, and thanks to the wonders of Sky Go, which allows you to watch um, uh, Sky channels if you have a subscription anywhere in Europe. Completely we legally. To, completely legally, absolutely. We were able to watch F2. Now, unfortunately, I missed the star because I was doing some work in the pit lane. And I came in, I, I kept asking you, and you wouldn't answer because you were working, why on earth are those cars a lap behind? Why are they a lap behind? Why are they a lap behind? I don't understand this. Um, 
it wasn't until later when I think you finished your your time that you told me, oh, that's because Mick Schumacher caused an accident. Uh, they uh, all got stuck. Uh, yes, Kelsey Breeze. Mm-hmm. Um, got stuck, and then some. I think you said somehow they lost the lap during the safety car, and I went. No, what right, happened was how did that happened. Yeah, well, what happened was now that's very good press save so far from Nick. Um, the uh, it was the feature race, so it was the pit stop race, and people came in early and therefore dropped back and at Monte Carlo you tend to be very close or actually do lose a lap Um, when the track was blocked anybody who was behind the blockage who had pit stopped the guys came round and when they lined them back up again in the pit lane um, they didn't do a wave by Um, even though they started they said they'd put the safety car out, although I have to say I didn't see that because I was not I was too busy watching what I was meant to be watching. And okay. so they lined them up and everybody from a certain point down who pit-stopped was a lot back. And they didn't redress it before they sent the cars back out on the track. And they then trundled around and therefore the people who hadn't stopped had this lap advantage and then they stopped and they still had eight-tenths of a lap advantage. Um, and unsurprising, the people who, who then became the people who got all the points and the best position in the reverse grid. And having read that, I said, surely that's, they can't carry on with that. That That is going to have to get protested because that's a complete muck-up. And from understanding, it, it was protested. The stewards said, yes, we made a mistake. Really sorry. Can't sort it out. Tough luck on you who got... Um, disadvantage rather than what I should have said, John, which is we're really sorry. We've made a massive muck up. We're going to have to void the race. And because you can't have a world championship with a race that's been decided by such a monumental mistake, we're going to void the race mm. and then we'll just start the shorter race using the qualifying positions from yesterday. That's what I would have done. Well, that was um, a good point, you see, because it also, because you start the, the sprint race using the finishing positions that you finished the first one. It actually... Reversed, yeah, it, it, reversed. Yeah, it, it actually had an effect on both races. Um, I, just to fill in, again, just to fill in a little more of the detail, a protest was made by one of the teams, or a couple of the teams, actually, I think, that were a lap down. And that was found to be, um, effectively, to be upheld, that it, it wasn't uh, a spurious uh, po- uh, protest or anything like that, which they can then get um, sanctioned for. And it was it was upheld, and the the stewards said, "Yeah, we did kind of make make a mistake, but it's after the race now. There's nothing we can do, and uh, we can't find effectively." And I'm praising, uh, I'm sorry, paraphrasing here. Um, we can't find an elegant way to put it right, so we'll just leave the result the way it is. Now, the last time that happened in sports car racing, when an official made a mistake and wiped out pretty much all of the Porsches. Every Porsche ever built. Uh, yes. Uh, and that was at Ricard. Um, a quick adjustment was made to that series scoring where it said, you can drop a score. Now, yeah. that to me would have been, I, I understand what you're saying. They clearly didn't want to avoid the race because it was Monaco and it's important. Um, and people at the front of the field might have said, well, it didn't. It wouldn't have affected what we were doing. Can't um, tell. Can't tell. I mean, I, I'm sorry. But I, 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 I know I, that. You're being exceptionally generous. It doesn't well, matter no, I'm where playing it devils. is. I'm playing it doesn't devil's matter advocate. where it is. It doesn't matter if it's in if it's a, a the, fir- the first race at the most least glamorous track in the world or Monaco. It's not the point. You can't you can't change the rules based on where something is or what it means. The fact is they made a complete race altering mistake because the reason some of it all right, Mick Schumacher 
deserved what he got because he caused the accident. I'm going to think it's Mick Schumacher. If it had been Barry Miggins, I'd have said the same thing. Mm. But the rest of them ended up at the back because they strategically decided to do the early pit stop rather than the late pit stop, which is always a choice in F2 these days, yes. depending on what tyre you start on. They So they were they had, were running their strategy and were disadvantaged, not by, you know, fair enough, the random things that happen in races, a safety car or whatever it may be, by a officiating error. Therefore, if the, the officials made the error, that doesn't work either, John, because the way F2 works, and also it's a feature race has more points than a, than a sprint race. So do you say everyone has to drop, everyone has to drop a feature race score? You know, yeah. it, it gets complicated. I personally think that voiding the whole thing is actually more... I mean, what, they should do the thing they did. They should, right, I can't remember who won the first race. I'm sorry, was it Nick DeVries? Nick DeVries, you st- that still counts as a win. You've still won whatever it is now, six F2 races. Unfortunately, you get no points for it. Yeah. So your so your record of wins and whatever it may yes you've got those wins but you get no okay. points, right? And because you can't I just I just think it's it's like, you know it's just unfair on on the people who and, and it's a massive mistake. They must have sat there in the race knowing they've made the mistake. So why didn't they unmake the mistake during the race? Uh, yeah, can't disagree with that. Uh, qualifying, um, <sighs> good. Not for it is I, Leclerc, on home no, ground. What I, was I that about? I, well, it's, it's actually what the problem is is that Ferrari have made between them all of them the th- the, 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 the three the three elements S Vettel, um, C Leclerc, and Ferrari the team have made a catalogue of mistakes all season, an absolute catalogue, and and it's far too long to even begin to go through it. Um, unfortunately. Um, they fell foul during qualifying of going out early and setting both the cars, setting relatively meh times. Not awful times, but meh times. Um, Vettel made a mistake and uh, Leclerc mucked up Raskas a little bit. But they sat there and they were going, oh, okay, we're doing all right. We should be all right. But then the track began to evolve really quickly. And as somebody else pointed out, the interesting thing about Monaco is that track evolution is also... Um, added to by the fact that drivers get their eye in. So, because they do so many laps at Monaco, because the way the, the, the tyres warm up, they, do, they don't do too fast laps, they do five or six, and they actually get the you know, point. drivers get their eye in. Mm-hmm. And, you, and I never thought that before, but it's a good point. Most people, you stick someone out at Barcelona on a set of tyres, and they will do their best lap as you know, an F1 driver straight away. Because they know Barcelona, and it's the same. But with Monaco, where obviously the, the lap comes from getting within one point, zero point one millimeters of the barrier each time. Yeah, you know, you're going to play yourself in. You're certainly going to start with a banker, aren't you? Because you're not going to want to. So they got that completely wrong. And despite that, they sent Fettel out because he had a much worse. Um, again, he had a much worse um, first run, and he pinged it onto the um, the fastest time of all. But they thought, no, Charles, you're all right. That's fine. And then watched a gag and a gog and open mouth as he dropped out into 16th place. So he ended up um, missing out on the cup with a car that was good enough, you know, for the for, for the top four position. Um, but these, the thing is, though, that's happened a lot. That has happened regularly, and it's happened at different circuits. And if we're really, really honest about this, if it wasn't Leclerc, who was also monogasque, it doesn't help. But if it hadn't been Ferrari with their lit- litany of mistakes, it would be a oh dear, never mind, one of those things. But it's just another chance to beat them with a stick. Um, for a tremendous error, when in fact it was quite a small error that that, that you know had a huge consequence. Yes. Um, 
so onto the race. Yes. Uh, and hardest race ever needs a miracle. Or did it? Uh, well, we were watching. We, we were, watching were we race. were watching in Bruno Airport, and you were shouting at the computer <laughs> that <laughs> okay. there were people when you know everybody's going, oh, oh, oh Hamilton, no, he can only do forty-two laps. He's going to move into the danger zone. He's moving into uncharted territory. And you were saying, hang on a minute, there's was it Grosjean down the field? There was somebody uh, down the field. Laps on softs. Yeah. Had, had done um, hundred and fifty million laps on softs, and and, and yeah. was just as quick at the end as he was at the beginning. I think I think it's. An, I mean, I I am fully aware, and I haven't made really haven't got an issue, and I understand why the, the commentators and the analysts have to build it up because if you, if you actually had the conversation that you and I had, and, and you weren't giving it full concentration, because there's a far more important thought match going on, you know, you you wouldn't. I say I, I was saying he's fine. It's not an issue. He'll be fine. Um, yeah, around Monaco. Yes, if he, if he'd been in the same situation in a in a proper proper race. Track, then he probably would have had a problem, um, but it wasn't. It's Monaco, and we saw last year that you could have 160 horsepower down and still win as long as you drive the line and work out the point places you're vulnerable. Um, you know, he drove very well. Um, I think. I think again, the race, you know, suffered from the form narrative that they have with Lewis, um, where they constantly play specific messages of him questioning stuff and and having a go at people and i've and i've had a bit of a think about this and i i get the impression I and mean, what i've kind of worked out for lewis is that it, you know i think that lewis's radio messages are effectively the same as alex ferguson's press conferences right so alex ferguson made manchester united an unbelievably successful club by developing a siege mentality Everyone's against us. They all us hate us. And them. Do it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I think that's what Lewis does. Lewis motivates himself by making him, making a siege mentality. So he go, oh, I've been let down by the team. It's a nightmare. What can I do? Only I can do it. Only I can. And it's just it's his way of motivating himself. Because the point is, he's on the radio having these various negative comments and everything else. Does he ever make a mistake? No. When was the last time you saw Lewis Hamilton make a mistake in the lead of a race? A mistake. See, not a mistake. He's had engine problems. He fell yeah. off. He fell off coming into the pits um, 25 years ago. 2007. Yeah. yeah. When? Well, where um, was that? That was in China. China. Um, yeah. He doesn't make mistakes. The point about it, he does not make mistakes. This year, he, you know, he was the one time I can think he did. He, he made a slight error was when he was chasing down Bottas in the last two laps of Azerbaijan. But he was going full, full whack for it. That's fine. That's chasing. Thing. That's what you're supposed to do. Um, and, I, and I, yeah, and obviously, Fon playing these messages, and people think he's a winger. I don't think Lewis is a winger at all. I think this is absolutely designed to to work his own mind into this ability to get into this into, into a kind of a, a you know a, this, this focused state. And he does it by by effectively thinking about oh, it's you know the fact is he's the best driver in the best car. You know he can win, so he has to manage his mind not to do what Ayrton Senna did in 1988 when he was the best car in the best and lost concentration, crashed into a barrier. Um, you know, you've got to find a way of motivating you. And by proving everyone wrong, what better motivation could it be? Hmm. Uh, it was a good drive. I thought he handled where he was quick and where he wasn't quick pretty brilliantly. Uh, Bottas, again, had no luck. So we didn't get the sixth, seventh, eighty-fourth, one-two of the year. Um, I rather agree with the Sky Sports commentators and Martin Brundle uh, and uh, David Croft, actually, in particular, that an unsafe release in a pit lane anywhere and particularly Monaco to get a lesser penalty 
uh, than somebody banging into some banging whales with somebody is a bit off. Um, yeah, but, that, but, we've, but the, the problem with the inconsistency of penalties, John, we had road rage Vettel getting a 10-second oh, yeah. stop going back out three years ago. Then somebody, I think a bit later, went over a blend line and got the same thing, you know. Yeah, yeah I agree. Um, the five-second, I thought the five-second, it's interesting because it, it, that penalty is not a defined penalty, unsafe release. It's, it's you know, right. and, and I think they were very generous Interestingly, I thought it was massively uh, disingenuous of Helmut Marker to come out with a selection of rubbish, saying he felt the stewards were biased towards uh, everyone apart from his own team by saying that it was very unfair they got a penalty, and also that Hamilton should have been penalised for the coming together he had with uh, Verstappen on the last lap. And I think like, penalty lap. I think have you seen the still photographer photographs with your driver fully locked up yeah. hitting the back of Hamilton? Marvelous you know, piece of photography. It, that you know, it's very yeah. It, I'm all for you know making your point, but don't make yourself look stupid because it just makes anything you say in the future less valuable. You can't, if you're going to claim, basically, he's turning around claiming black is white. We can all see what happened there. Unsafe release, which you gained from, actually you didn't gain from, but um, Bottas lost from. That, that's more more the point actually. You're absolutely um, right. But they could have gained from it. Um, uh, and the other thing is, um, you know, and, and, they, and the, the accident, well, the coming together, which got a little bit of excitement, was entirely Verstappen going for it. Good luck to him. But if they had come together and a car had been damaged, he would have needed to pick up a penalty. By the way, did you notice how clever Red Bull were? Or how clever they thought they were being? Mm. When, who got the point for fastest lap? Uh, oh, they dropped Gasly back in, didn't they? Yeah. And and how many laps from the end do they normally drop these guys back to get fastest lap right at the end? A ah, couple or three. Yeah, they dropped him back 16 laps for the end. Yeah. Why do they do that? Uh, so that he definitely got a clear lap and he got his... No, it's because at that time, Hamilton was at the height of his whinging. Ah. And they, I am certain, thought they just thought they'll do that. We'll just tempt Mercedes. Because as it was, if Hamilton had stopped, he would have dropped back behind Gasly and not got past him. They know if he then stopped then, he would have got back and dropped back behind Bottas, so they would have got him back past again. And, and, and it would have given, obviously, uh, Verstappen a chance to get, get him win. So they were just making, they were just giving an extra option to Mercedes right. to go in, drop in a free air with, with less loss, with the, the plus point of, um, of letting um, Lewis win. Because they didn't need to give Gasly 16 laps to do it. He could done it before. Um, so... You know, it was a little clever bit. No one, no one else spotted that, but it was a very clever little. Uh, just yeah, yeah. Here's, here's a space for you. If you want to let Max win, you know, and your and your point loss will be less if you have this problem. So they they were playing it. If the tyres really were that bad, knock yourself out, boys. Mm, pretty good. Uh, who else had good days? What do you think of Vettel's? Uh, he just, I mean, Vettel, I don't think there was much he could Vettel. do. He just super trundled around. Yeah, super, super trundle. Um, they were saying he, the radio was saying he, was, he had. Um, overheating issues so he could only do two laps behind a car and had to drop back so that's probably what was happening there's no reason why it wouldn't be he knew he was in second place as long as he didn't get five seconds or more behind uh Verstappen and that was never going to happen by Lewis was controlling the pace so he basically turned up did his job properly and earned his money you know it's like working at a shift at Asda or or quick fit or anything else he did what he was asked to do he changed four exhausts and went home mm. um rest of the top 10 uh, well, Bottas, um, the, it's now 17 points, and Lewis saying he isn't really driving very well yet, and we know his best tracks are coming up, so that's probably the end of Bottas's challenge. Um, you've got uh, fifth place with Gasly, who, you know, 
came again was was off off the back of the other four when he should be snapping at their heels. But you know, got some points. Uh, Carlos Sainz did very very well in sixth place. Um, drove it all through, and then you had the two Toro Rossos getting points. So all four Honda engines got points at Monaco. Um, I think it was Danny Kvyat who's proving that a year away as a simulator driver for uh, Ferrari is obviously the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, which perhaps what Robert Kubica should have done instead of what he's doing. And he got seventh. Alex Albon drove well to eighth. Danny Rick um, was ninth after effectively holding the entire rest of the field up by three seconds a lap, but then making the mistake of pitting during the safety car, which was too early, and then getting stuck behind somebody else who's holding the track by three seconds a lap. So he, but just trundled through. And I think it was Roman Grosjean who got. Tenth, uh, and the most interesting thing he did was being overtaken by Leclerc before Leclerc cl- crashed into the barrier and and, uh, and Hulkenberg. Mm. Um, the big chat of the weekend then, with all of that, um, with both F2 and Formula One. Although F2, there was a bit of overtaking. There was some great overtaking, and in fairness, Leclerc did um, make an, an overtake, um, clip the barrier with uh, the right rear when he tried to do Rascast the second time around. Um, do we? Nobody. I, I don't think anybody really seriously says Monaco shouldn't be on on the calendar. It is it's grandfathered there for a reason. But do we have to think about making some changes where that track in particular and the way Formula One is right now that is so dependent on DRS and there isn't a long enough DRS zone to make a difference? I don't think I don't think it would make um, DRS super DRS even when they um, produce the 2021 cars. It's not going to make overtaking happen because um, with the design of the track, you know there are two places where you need to be able to. All you need to do is have you know some form of drive in two places, and you've got a very very good chance of staying ahead of the previous person. Um, the only the only way that's going to change is if they change the design of the track, and they are talk, and they are currently doing more land reclamation, aren't they? Mm. Um, in Monaco, every square foot worth about twenty billion pounds. So it's hardly surprising. And you think, well, perhaps they, if they could slightly redesign the track and just, you know, lengthen the straight um, prior going the tunnel, because that's always going to be the best overtaking position if it's a bit longer, um, a bit of a longer run up um, to the hairpin. They could never, they could never run DRS there because the the curve of the tunnel is too high, um, too much, and also it's a solid barrier on either side. They do have DRS on some curves, but you've got um, soft runoff either side um, so yeah I mean I think a, a slight redesign would certainly help but it's it's not the point Monaco is a spectacle it's a motor race it's a spectacle masquerading as a motor race it's uh, but it is desperately important for the glamour of Formula One you know if you want to go for another glamorous street race where there's actually racing or more racing then you go to Singapore don't you yeah. and even that's quite tight but it's 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 a spectacle you know and and I think it, it delivers a decent race every now and again. It always delivers really exciting qualifying. You just you know move your, your your thoughts to Saturday and and then hope for some rain. And every six seven years there is rain. But no, I don't. I I, I think it, it, it you know yeah. Let's they, they can get a redesign in a few years and do that. But otherwise, it's, it it deserves its place. It's great to look at. Needs a better director. But then radio, television, Monaco just won't give up the uh, the directorship of the event. Well, that was unfortunate. But Fom don't. The, is that the is that the only one that does that? Yeah, yeah. It's the only non-form one, yeah. Uh, it's, the only, it's the only event that pays no, no uh, hosting fee. Yeah, so it's not going anywhere. No. Um, I, 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 we were talking about it at Bruno, weren't we, about how you could how you could do it and how you could get down towards Tabak and maybe put a chicane in at Tabak and go down, go the opposite way to which 
the Formula E's went down. So mm-hmm. down on the old promenade, not the new promenade, and then sort of cut down. So come straight out of, um, come straight out the tunnel, and, and you've got that long run out the tunnel then. Yeah. At that point, uh, first time I've seen blue seats around the uh, around the swimming pool complex for a while, and they didn't, uh, they didn't fill up during the race. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I've no idea. My my understanding was those seats tended to be people in who are also. Uh, able to partake of the uh, hostility clubs as well, but you know, it was still there was still plenty of people there. It was still a uh, a massive event, and it was still you know the the glamour is there. But the sun shone, the cars went fast. You know, we got a, we got a a, a, night, a winner that was uh, you know had a bit of emotion around it with the um, passing Nicky Loud a few days earlier. So, no, I, yeah, Monaco is Monaco. I really enjoyed it, but as you as you sat there watching me watch it you then realize how sad i am didn't you no 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 it wasn't that at all it was i i just couldn't see unless it ended in a cloud of blue language and carbon fiber i couldn't see any change at the front um and then you toughed it out right to the end i watched the last five laps when i got back home um because there wasn't any football worth watching and <laughs> um so i watched it after the indie well, actually, before the Indy 500, I just watched the last five laps just to see what had actually happened. And, and um, uh, I, and, and I just couldn't see it happening. They're wide cars. I think they're two metres wide now, aren't they? Yeah, so they're 40 um, centimetres. The pair of cars is 40 centimetres wider than it was only three years ago. So that doesn't help. But I think it's, you know, the, the, the to get... If they if they have this reclaimed land, if they can change the a couple of bits of the circuit, which is, you know, we're not wedged to a particular design, uh, change the design of the circuit, uh, they might be able to make a, a more of a potential overtaking position, not necessarily an overtaking position. Uh, Nick Damon, thank you very much indeed. Did we have any motorbikes at the weekend? Uh, British super uh, British bikes. British super bikes. Yes, of course, cool. I was watching. Um, two cracking races. Um, uh, second, the first race at Donald was an absolute belt of four or five bikes for the lead. Absolutely brilliant stuff. We'll get Kerry on in the next couple of weeks to do a little bit of a, a round-up of what's been happening. Shall we go back to success ballast? Because I know oh, you want we? to. Uh, Matthew says, definitely not. This isn't touring cars. Yay. Um, I like Matthew. <laughs> very good. Um, what else? Uh, is this... Uh, uh, hang on a second. I've gone down. Uh, not enough rounds, says Ryan Siegler, to ha- to make it have the desired effect. It's okay for touring cars because they have 5,000 races a year. Uh, why do you have to punish the teams... In what is supposed to be your top class, you're punishing for being for being so for being too good. You're doing it wrong somewhere if you have to do that. The regulations can't be right, and at that point, it ceases to become racing. Eric says, just say no. Ben says, no thanks. Technical regulations should enable parity, but if the framework enables teams to be better, they shouldn't be punished for it. Uh, in endurance racing, says Ben Jackson, the effect would be too big. A number of people saying that. 24 hours, you know, you're going to wear your tyres more and blah, blah, blah. Well, John, why don't they just do what um, Preventic do? Just reduce the fill rate, amount of, amount of fuel you can put in. The just faster you go, the faster you go, the fewer litres you can put in. Yeah, and the good news about that is every time they come out, they'll be running like heck to catch back up again and overtaking people. And then they, so, oh, you mean that dynamic uh, equalisation that they have? That's yeah, a good idea, just, I like that. Just take, just take some litres of fuel out. If, you, if you're having to stop 
you know, one, two, three, four, five more times, and you'd keep, you know, and then they'll go fine. Mm. It's, and it's free. That's a free amendment. You haven't got to change anything on your car for that. A uh, number of people pointing out that when we first started the WEC, there was Form 5 cars in the GTE class. And, you know, as long as the racing's good, it only takes two cars for a race. And I absolutely agree with that. And when you've got three manufacturers of the, uh, with the history and the intensity and the passion of Porsche, Aston Martin and Ferrari, and, you know, Brabham's on the, in the wings. They want that BT62 to be a GTE car. So, and, you know, it's got a ways to go, clearly, but that's what they're looking at. Glickenhaus looking at GT3 and GT4 cars. Uh, maybe if the hypercar rigs don't go the way they want, is there an opportunity for them to come in? All of a sudden, we could have something very interesting. Uh, very interesting. Uh, people forget the WEC. The WEC Urcus, the WE Circus, was born out of OEMs taking Le Mans to the world. If the OEMs are no longer interested, uh, then sound the retreat, remember the glory days, and return to uh, our austere seasonal continental series. Well, you know, <laughs> if Le Mans was to become a standalone race, what would happen to the WEC? Yeah. Hmm. You know, I... Well, that's, I mean, this is the question. The interesting thing really is, is that the ALMS is now a massive success, the ELMS is a massive success, and the WEC's having a bit of a struggle. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> Yoda's uncle says, I've just looked at the FAA website to see who the race stewards were for the F2, but the stewards bio have been taken down. <laughs> from Monaco. <laughs> Very good. Shorter wheelbase for F1 cars, says Ben. Uh, more side-by-side off-corner exits to take uh, to set up overtake and reduce aero efficiency to make cars harder to drive. More mistakes equals more overtakes. Yeah, fantastic. Well, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's what they're trying to do, isn't it? Uh, for 2021, hmm. there'll be a reduction overall downforce. The downforce there is will be reproduced more by the underfloor. So theoretically both those things should happen but obviously we haven't seen those regs either uh, and fair play to julia verts who came up with the idea of the red nicky caps yeah. for everybody on the grid as well and dave alcott will give him the final word in this first part of the program the most important thing they got right at monaco so let's celebrate the tribute to nicky louder fitting that at the most iconic race of the season they paid tribute to a legend of the sport on and off the track well said dave Oh, sorry, you caught me off guard there. <clears throat> it's Midweek Motorsport, and here's what's coming up. Uh, still to come in hour two of the programme, uh, we'll have Shea Adam, possibly a bit more of Nick uh, as well. We'll be talking Indy 500, looking forward to Le Mans and to the test day, also to Detroit, and possibly a special guest as well. Uh, Tim did a book review earlier on this week, and we'll try and squeeze that in to the second half of the programme. Also, by the way, more of your tweets, at Specutainment, Success Ballast, Formula One, you name it, we're happy to hear about it from you on the original listener-driven programme. It's Midweek Motorsport, Series 14, Episode 21 on RS1. Midweek Motorsport on RadioLeMond.com uh, So, Nick, I'm going to try something a little bit special there. Here. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm gonna. All right, go then. I'm gonna try and get Shea up at the same time as you are. You're going doubles, uh, are you? On the line, we're gonna we're gonna try and go, try and go doubles on this. I've got no. Are we side, are we going side by side? We're going side by side in just a moment. Um, before we do, let's just quickly talk about uh, Le Monteste at the weekend, uh, and. Uh, it's important, isn't it? Let's not write this off. It's it's not competitive, but it is important. Yeah, I mean, I think I think again we're in this strange situation um, because it's a uh, super season. We've had a, a already had one Le Mans in this um, cycle. It's not quite as as full of question marks as it was this time last year. However, certainly for the LMP1 um, privateer cars, the machines they're bringing. Uh, 12 months on are going to be significantly better, significantly more developed than the machines they had. So they they will be learning learning things as they go. And of course the the new the new team, the team that haven't been there before, will also be uh, having a bit of fun. But a lot of teams, it's just a case of chance to to just test the setup they had last year because nothing else has changed since then. Um, well, oh yes, of course, because it was the it was the first. Uh, yes, we've had two Le Mans in one season. Mm. Is that that's what you see? Yeah, so the, 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 all the WEC teams went there with their same homologated car, so they have all. So realistically, you just bolt on the setup that was working and just check there hasn't been any too many changes. I don't know, have they done any resurfacing this year? I'm not sure. Um, Almost you know, certainly. No, they've they've done some changes to the um, the layout a little bit, um, just to pull the walls back a little bit, haven't they? In a few places. Yeah, I mean, so so it's it's an it's quite a good thing I think actually for the guys who've been there for it's a very useful eight hours because they're not starting from nowhere they're starting from a good baseline they can probably get some quite good work done uh, provided it's dry of course otherwise it's going to be a right pain being down there and and do we think well wet weather running's not useless uh, at Le Mans, at Le Mans but do we think it it's always good? rains at Le Mans, always apart rains, from the last two years do we, but, but do we think it's going to be a dry June. Well, the so far the, the it's it's it, you know it, it, you do get an awful lot of predictions of of another red hot summer. Well, various papers say, but that's normally they're, they're clickbaiting. Um, all the medium term forecasts are kind of squally. It all seems like quite the uh, typical changeable weather. So I don't think I what well, I would say is that it doesn't look like we're going to get a heat wave, but whether we get rain or not will probably depend on uh, which you know which half hour and which day we're talking about. Uh, now, with any luck, in a moment or two, we should be able to speak to share. What I mean, I know you're not down there at the weekend. You're busy. What are you expecting? Uh, what are you expecting to see? Will Will Toyota go all out? What are we going to see from the P1s? You know, is it even? I'm Paul. Crunch the numbers, most, but is it worthwhile for us? Thing, I think the most interesting thing will be for for Paul to. If I was going to say Paul, this is the one thing I'd like you to do for me. Paul, I'd, I'd be very interested to see the comparisons of the LMP privateer teams times across the two years. Right. The rest, I think we know because we're going to we. we oh, the other thing that'd be interesting to see is, see is where the Aston Martin is, obviously, because and and the BMW, um, because they were both new as well last year in yeah. GTE. Um, but there has been obviously quite a lot of fiddling with the BOP since then, so it's not quite as pure a situation as the um, LMP1, where they have no they have no ballast they have no uh, balance performance and ballast on no ballast on those cars. Shea uh, Adam is joining us. Good evening, Shea. Hello. And uh, very echoey, Shea. Uh, you, you in a church? No, I'm I'm in my church. I'm in my house. Are you not oh. in the usual spot, which is a little more audio damped than that normally? 
I, I can go sit in the closet if you would prefer that. No, no, you're all right. You're, you're fine. You're fine. And <laughs> how's Fort Lord? Shay's going into the closet. That's, that's weird. <laughs> what, um, I'm moving on quickly from that. What, uh, what's the weather like in Fort Lauderdale? Um, hot, beautiful, sunny, perfect weather to be leaving tomorrow and then not come home until after Lime Rock. So a little bit sad. Oh, really? Is that how long you're here for? Um, what, yeah. are you th- what are you thinking about the weekend uh, at Le Mans, first of all? Uh, let- uh, let's talk about that. 91.2 FM, Mobile One, hashtag Mobile One RLM. Uh, Johnny and Joe will be anchoring the coverage with... Uh, uh, a conveyor belt of guests I've been promised uh, in and out uh, uh, in and out of the booth which we'll have in the press room of course we don't uh, the TV compound not set up so we're in the press room there what will uh, what will you be looking forward to and who would you like to hear from at the weekend and we'll get that jotted down well I've sent Joe my digital notes which was a 34 page word document worth of information on all the drivers so I'm I'm really looking forward to see if he actually even opens that email and reads any of it um, but the liveries, the liveries have been the story of the week as everybody sort of rushes to get theirs out and not get lost in the deluge yeah, good point. that we've seen. Um, so, for example, this morning, waking up and seeing that the two WEC Porsche is going to be running the gold on their cars. Meanwhile, the two American cars be running in the Brumos livery. We've been treated to finally seeing the Fords, what they're going to look like for their final outing. That's the one thing that I'm really interested to see and hear because, of course, we don't see the liveries on radio. But that gets the drivers, the mechanics, the crew chiefs, just that little bit of extra motivation. And I can't wait to hear that in the voices of everybody in the pit lane. Um, some change driver lineups as well, of course, at Le Mans. And uh, it, not necessarily all of the drivers will be, be, will be there at the weekend, yeah? Yeah, we've got a couple of them who are going to be staying in Detroit with us, John. That's true. Um, we, I mean, Sebastian Bourdais and Scott Dixon obviously can't go over for the test day because they're going to be participating in the IndyCar race. But you've also got drivers who perhaps aren't used to doing the double, like Jonathan Bomarito, who's going to be joining the 67 Ford GT lineup. Doing the double is a new thing for him, so he's going to have to learn how to combat the jet lag. Um, but we're going to have a lot of interesting people who are missing Detroit. I'm thinking about you, Mr. Patrick Lindsay, who is going to be forgoing Detroit to instead uh, focus on the World Endurance Championship and the GTE AM class. But it's going to be a really fun um, Twitter and Instagram couple of days, John, as people from both sides of the paddock are wishing their friends do well on the other side and perhaps wishing that they were at the other track. <laughs> yeah, that that's true. Uh, that's true. Let's talk about, um, before we talk about IMSA at the weekend, let's go back a weekend and go to the Indy 500, which Nick and I were going, well, everybody was, they were, everybody in America was doing a very English thing, Nick, weren't they? Oh, the weather, the weather, we're not going to have that. We won't be having oh, it until well. July. We're not going <laughs> to have the Indy 500 till July. So we were quite, we just potted back. We came back once we'd landed at Stansted and got the uh, got the takeaway in and, and settled down. You went off home and I thought, well, that's, it's not happening. And the responsible adult said, oh, no, it's on. It's, it's, it started. 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what, what was impressive, though. I mean, I think yeah, the Americans absolutely embraced the concept of overanalyzing the weather. So we've given you something at least in the last few years. Nick, you need to come to Florida in June, mate, when we've got a hurricane coming on. It's five days of nonstop weather talk. Yeah, but in fairness, if it's a hurricane, even though, yeah, I might talk about it. Yeah, you could get be evacuated, then you've got to work out where to avoid the zombie, the zombie apocalypse that happens afterwards. <laughs> mm. uh, the the race itself, Simon Pagenaud takes all the plaudits, the headlines, the pint of milk, uh, and the big check, the big comedy check. Um, it, they actually drove a pretty good race. Got the tactics just about right. Looked like you might be a couple of lap short but then i thought to myself hang on no it doesn't matter that he's pitting two three two four six laps before everybody else because they've all still got the same a number of pit stops to do before the end and we've lost you oh sorry i thought i thought you were throwing that to nick um no it it i did i didn't know anything about america (laughs) can't even find it on a map trust me (laughs) We'll test that out. Um, yeah, the, in terms of the, the pit strategy, it just meant that Simon's tires were perhaps at their peak a little bit sooner than everybody else. And we did see a lot of drop-off throughout the course of the race. I, I forget who it was, but at one point, there was somebody who was racing back up through the field, might have been Servia before all the controversy with him, where he was passing cars who were in second and third, and he was a lap down, but that was only because he had already pitted and had the advantage of fresh firestones. But uh, yeah, for Simon Pagano, beautiful execution. The pass that he made on Rossi with about two laps to go, perfect. The driving to try and break the draft some people might have seen it as blocking, but if you're on a super speedway, it's a totally different mental concept. It's not so much about stopping the person behind you from getting around you. It's stopping the person from behind you being able to use any of your speed advantage. Mm. It was excellent. And to be honest, it was the sweetest possible victory for Simon Pagenaud. Coming into the month of May, there was a lot of speculation about Mr. Penske's organization And Mr. Penske has made no secret that he loves Alexander Rossi. Rossi has been in the uh, DPI car for Daytona and Sebring. It's long been thought that Alexander Rossi would be a Penske man for next year. Well, they're not going to get rid of Joseph Newgarden. They're not going to get rid of Will Power. So that meant that perhaps Pagano's seat was on the line. He comes into the month of May. He wins the Indy Grand Prix in a fine fashion. He comes in and wins the pole position, Mm. taking home an extra big chunk of change. And then he wins the Indy 500 over Alex Rossi. I think that's why Alex, perhaps in the final interviews, was just that little bit more heartbroken. Because not only was he beaten for a second win, he was beaten by the guy whose job he's trying to take. Uh, And he got a bit, (laughs) he got, uh, did you see any of it, Nick? Did you see any of the Indy 500? How testy was was Rossi? did think he was very, very. I didn't think that was his um, his finest hour, his post race interview, to be honest. Well, even in the there? race when he was, you know, pointing and slapping and waving and gesticulating. He, he... Yeah, I think he was overhyped, to be honest. I think he was a little bit over the over the top, and I think it came out at the end. He, he didn't do the, you know, he didn't do the thing you should do, which is, you know, um, congratulate the winner. He minged, he he whinged about Honda Power. He whinged about this. He whinged about that. And frankly, I thought. You know, I, I'm all for people being honest, but there's, a, but there's a time and a place where you just go, well done to the other guy who beat me, and yep. you were ahead for a lap. You went ahead too early. You know, mm-hmm. you couldn't hold it, so you tactically got it wrong. So, 
and you came second. It's not the end of the world. You've won it before. It's good for the championship. It's good for his Grow championship, up. no doubt. Um, the the number six, the Imza Penske number six, the HPD, <laughs> uh, continues its massive winning run, or at least the drivers within that car share continue the winning run. Yeah, and also just to touch on a little bit more of what Nick said, because Alexander Rossi is the third driver of the number seven Acura DPI, Acura Honda Power, they're probably not too happy with his comments either about when they said what happened, and he said horsepower, clearly blaming the engine for the reason that he didn't win, Nick. That's a very good point. Um, But yeah, we we come into the month of May with uh, Dane Cameron and Juan Pablo Montoya, the regular driver, well, the full season drivers I'm not going to call Montoya regular because he would be offended at that um but they they win in mid-Ohio for the sports car course then Simon wins everything he possibly can for Mr. Penske in Indy you've also got Scotty Mack who is sweeping up in Australia everything that he can get so in terms of Mr. Penske's drivers they've done their job this month and unfortunately the Belle Isle Grand Prix is the first of June <laughs> yeah, but the thing to remember that the greatest thing for for Roger Penske, obviously, is he's getting 127 part part work published by by Marshall every day about his his, his way he's changed the world of racing. It was 15. <laughs> it was 15. It was ridiculous. And it was only no one needs more <laughs> than two parts. Right. I'm sorry. I I I know I had Diagostini as a sponsor for a couple of years, but he, they didn't need the part works they did. If you can't condense <laughs> it into two parts, just give up. No one, no one's going to be interested after part four. Yes, but you can buy them all at the end. That uh, is true. Yeah, and they get, get you swaps. Yeah. So I've got a part seven of Roger. I'm going to swap your part six. Oh no, I've got two part fours. <laughs> pointless. <laughs> Absolutely pointless. You, I love Marshall. You know, I love Marshall, but sometimes he disappears down his own rabbit hole. To no, be I, 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 I tell you what, it does say. In all fairness, though, Nick, and I'm, all right, I, I, I don't agree with you, but um, I'll tell you what it does say. It just says how big an impact Roger Penske has had yeah, on that oh, big race, yeah, yeah. doesn't Absolutely. it? On, on, it, on the biggest it, race. I may have misheard it, but this is it 18th win or something? 18th yes. win. 18th pole and 18th win. Which extraordinary. Off now. It, it's just greedy, frankly. They need mm. to have um, an Ivan Muller rule, don't they? Um, no, <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. What they do, because apparently he's really in these days, is next year with his car's a success ballast. Ah, right. There you go. Sh- shall we? Uh, before we leave Indy, uh, the Freedom 100, that was a barn burner. We've talked about Indy Lights and, you know, the paucity of entries. Well, they're up this year. Uh, and the Indy race last year was pretty good. The Indy race this year for Indy Lights was extraordinary. Unfortunately, I didn't see any of it. Because but you must I was have seen un- the finish. I was in an undisclosed location somewhere. Um, I saw that Oliver Askey won, but I've seen zero video of the race, I'm embarrassed he, to say. He, he won by about, in fact, not even the width of the yard of bricks. What? Have you not? Have you really not seen Have you seen it, Nick? No, I haven't seen it at all. Right. Immediately we are done. I want you to go onto (laughs) any well-known video site because it's on the official IndyCar, the NTT IndyCar channel. Uh, In fact, by the time this sentence is finished coming out of my mouth, somebody will have tweeted it to at Specutainment. And even if all you do is watch the last four or five laps, the last two laps, the last two corners, in fact, then you'll get an idea of what the race was like. It was outstanding. Uh, I'll ask you, of course, another of Jeremy Shaw's Team USA graduates here. 
Yes, he is. And he's somebody who is successfully climbing the ladder. Uh, Oliver, who's a very, very nice young man, by the way. I love to see that he does well. And, uh, okay, I finally found the video replay. So I will watch that as soon as we are done. But, oh, my goodness, the slow-mo pictures. (gasps) How close was that? Yes. There you go. Uh, You're listening to Midweek Motorsports, Series 14, Episode 21. Uh, Before we move uh, on to IMSA and some other news, let's go back to the big story of tonight. This is the ACO uh, technical director talking about uh, equalisation of technology and the fact that they like the idea of success ballast for next year. Uh, The Real Slim says, uh, not happy with EOT. Surely they were aiming for a one-sided battle. Proper EOT would have had the non-hybrids faster than Toyota stopping, but stopping at least once more in a six-hour race. Instead, they were given shorter stints uh, at a lower pace. Uh, Nick Holland, one last success, a shot at success ballast, he said. If a soccer team were leading at half-time and were first to play the second half in clogs instead of football boots, or take two men off and play with just nine players, that would clearly be ridiculous. That's what it's like. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. Um, what else? Uh, Giancarlo Fisciquella says IndyCar didn't need Alonso. <laughs> Rating-wise, it was up better race than Monaco. To be honest, what was the? Um, we'll nip back. To, uh, this is this is the listeners driving what we're talking about here. What was the uh, over and under on NBC's uh, performance at the race? Um, they had the big name presenter. They had Danica and junior on the the pitch studio they did some of the pre-race interviews um you, you knew the commentary team were going to do their bit because that's what what they do what what was the the general feeling um it was up the nbc ratings they scored a 3.44 as their final which is on average about five and a half million viewers which is up from a 3.08 last year just under five million so it was the best rating since the 100th, which ironically was the one that uh, Alexander Rossi won. Yeah. But it, it was still, you kind of hope for a little bit more, especially when that is considered the Super Bowl of racing in the States. I mean, there's that and there's the Daytona 500. And neither of those sporting events gets anywhere close to the actual Super Bowl in terms of ratings. Maybe we need better commercials. Maybe that's what it is. Well, there was a lot of talk about how many commercials there were. Um, We, for the first time this year in the UK, um, Sky decided to fill the commercial gaps with uh, UK commentators. It was Tom Gamon, Alex Brundle. And I don't dislike either of their work. I just really dislike them doing that. Um, I, I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it adds anything, if I'm honest. I'd prefer to just see what was going on it's it, it's very hard for those two guys in a darkened studio somewhere um, at Sky Centre to to be able to do anything. And I, I, if I'm going to be absolutely honest, because we were watching on catch up, I fast forwarded through those bits uh, or turned it down um, because I felt it interrupted the flow of what was going on. That's a personal thing. I know there's probably many more people who thought it was great. And as I say, that is not a comment at all on um. The, what the guys were doing, I, I, it's just something that I think breaks up the floor. I would rather that NBC had done a proper international feed and just <laughs> kept talking in between in between the breaks. Uh, let's go back to our big story whilst we've still got Shea and Nick. We're talking about success ballast in WEC. Um, 
and possibly at Le Mans, the rain line says, oh, that would be a total yo-yo. Finish last, get a boost, then win and get dialed back. <laughs> then finish poorly and get... Oh, just on and on. Uh, <laughs> a number of people saying it discourages performance and that still wouldn't allow Ford to give up their sandbags. <laughs> oh, stop it. Um, uh, SRA Smoking Puppy says, um, I disagree with success ballast. As Imza said, when... Um, was it, I think it was last season, wasn't it, when the uh, Taylors won five rounds in a row. We balanced the cars, but not the teams or the drivers. This is the right stance to take on the matter because it rewards the best-performing teams and drivers. And, I mean, that that's a fair point, Nick, isn't it? That getting the equalisation of... That was 2017 for the Taylors, by the way. Um, mm. That's a fair point, Nick, isn't it? That... All very well balancing, as we talked about the ACO technical department having done a good job balancing in in non-hybrid P1, the turbos and the non-turbos. That's fine. You're balancing two different ways of of putting the the motive power into a car, but but just simply simply penalising success. There can be so many different things that go into that, and, and actually, success or failure, particularly in longer races, might not even be down to how the teams performance and, and their performance over a lap or a stint or anything is actually is actually happening no it's it's a very very blunt tool um you know and, and it, it 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 has i mean i realize what they're trying to do they're trying to present it is because they, they want to try and get the, the honda honda sorry the toyota <laughs> pulled back in some way but it's it's you know the genie's out the bottle on that one hmm. um i think my solution as described 25 minutes ago just reducing the amount of fuel the car goes far better hmm. Hmm. I, and that's always been an IMSA thing, Shea, hasn't it? That when we talk to any of the guys, uh, Jeff Carter or Simon Hodgson, who are IMSA technical, they mm-hmm. uh, they are at pains. In fact, you know, where where we've got that phrase from, we'll balance the technologies, we'll balance the engine sizes, we'll balance the cars from different manufacturers, but we never want to balance the, a, a good team. There's got to be there's got to be the opportunity to make a difference and not get penalised for it. And that comes from those guys. It, it completely does. And when you look, for example, uh, the, the perfect example is the GTLM class in IMSA because you see such good competition there. I mean, Porsche have won the last three races straight going back to the 12 hours of Sebring, but it's not because the cars or the drivers have been better. It's the teamwork and everything that makes it whole and that is exemplified in the information that goes back and forth between the manufacturers and the board, the full committee that decides the BOP in IMSA. The perfect example, we come into Watkins Glen in a month's time, and the BOP was already announced for that class because it was one of the classes that's getting a change. There's going to be no change for Belle Isle when we go in for any of the prototypes because they feel that the the cars are perfectly slotted to make the difference that the teams will be able to affect, not necessarily somebody having a better car than anyone else. But the BMWs have been languishing the last couple of races. They haven't been as competitive. So what does IMSA do? They give it a six-liter fuel break. They get six liters more. So it's exactly what Nick was talking about, trying to help them extend their fuel window in a longer race to maybe be able potentially to save a pit stop to try and fight back in a yeah. different sense because they don't have the car underneath them right now. Well, we were, uh, you know, we were talking about this at the weekend as well. You know, one of the reasons, um, I, and I know Alex Brundle's listening at the moment, and I, 
seriously, Alex, I, I was absolutely not criticising what you and Tom did. It's just, I, you guys did a fab job. It's just, I feel it breaks up what the Americans are doing. But somebody like Alex Brundle, you put Alex into a car, and he is the ultimate plug-and-play accessory. He gets good fuel mileage out of a car. Uh, he's light on his tyres, and mm-hmm. he can do things in even in LMP2, which is effectively, you know, it's it's a spec formula, but it has four chassis. But it's a spec engine formula, so you'd expect all those chassis, and it and it is kind of balanced a little bit because everybody got jokers that needed them to bring up their aero package. So you'd expect, you know, fuel mileage to be roughly similar, tyre wear to be roughly similar, but they're not because drivers like Alex Brundle can make a difference. And when you mandate uh, stint lengths, when you mandate pit stop lengths, uh, all of that sort of stuff, um, when you use the blunt instruments of dumbing things down, you take away the difference that good drivers like Alex make and and good pit crew and the guys who anal- analyse what they're doing and go, right, if we change the lefts first, that doesn't work as quickly as we do opposite sides and we can do that ballet in the pit lane better. I really think that we've got to be very careful here about where this is going. And we've got you've got to still reward, surely, Nick Damon, you've got to still re- reward excellence. And if, if there's no reward for excellence, why do we bother racing in the first place? Well, yes, but perhaps not next year. Because Toyota had a lovely reward for excellence over the last two years or last super season. Yeah, they, were, you know, they had an unopposed run to, the, to, the, to Le Mans. Not their fault. Uh, no, I'm not having a go at anyone here. I'm just saying it's a fact. They were rewarded for their investment in the series. They were rewarded, actually, for that, because, they, because it, obviously the fact that the private LMP cars couldn't match with what they were supposed to do, but it was written in the rules they'd have a lap advantage, and written in the rules they'd have a half a second advantage for their car, a lap. So they were, you know, blessed, um, and they will have won everything, which they would have won anyway, to be honest, because they've been fabulous. But uh, So for next year, they're trying to, I suppose, unbless them. What is an unblessing? Um, excommunication. excommunication. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, they're trying to excommunicate them a bit because they just want you the race to be better. You have been damned now, to the, intern- uh, the yes. infernal fires <laughs> of the hell. World of ban- and I understand why. They- I understand the ACI. I, I mean, if, if Toyota are prepared to accept it, which is incredibly generous because they're the only ones actually putting real investment and money into things um, for the sake of racing, and they've car- they obviously have a very big investment in- and commitment to the race. You know, they've, they've not... Yeah, they've, they've obviously hired Brendan to replace um, uh, Fernando. So they've not like gone, oh, we'll just you know, not worry. They've even hired a very, very good reserve driver for next year. So Thomas Laurent. You'll talk about that in a moment. With, with um, absolutely full, full, full push. So, you know, perhaps they want to take on the BR team and the um, uh, Rebellions at a disadvantage. And, and that perhaps that's their challenge. You know, perhaps that's what they want. They want to start on the back foot and see if they can still win because they're a better organisation. I think it was Henri Pescarolo a few years ago that said, listen, we we don't necessarily need to be able to be driving past as private as driving past the factory cars. But we do need to have a chance if they stumble, if they have a bad race, we need to have a chance to be able to do that. And, and that hasn't really happened in this brave new world. What I will say, and it's I am by no means uh, apologising for the ACO, uh, and their technical department here, because 
every everybody knows I've got I've had my issues with them down through the years. But I will say the LMP1 non-hybrid is in its first season still, and people are still working out. and And these are very good teams. But they are privateer teams, and they simply don't have the resources to knock the bugs out of things. Like, you know, Toyota came to the track with the the bugs knocked out of that new car because they'd already been testing it for 18 months. You don't have that opportunity when you're a privateer team, and therefore there's still more performance to come. And yeah, that's one of the problems with EOT and particularly BOP um, is that you know there are other there are other factors at play. It's not necessarily the ultimate performance we've seen from those LMP ones yet, and we might. It's a bit like chasing setup on a green track, isn't it? If you keep chasing the track and the track evolves, and you keep doing yourself back down again because the track's a bit green, then you never get to where you need to be by the time the track is actually its fastest. And that's the same sort of thing that you can get that vicious circle, that downward spiral, that you mm-hmm. can get into with EOT uh, and BOP. Uh, let's talk about Thomas Laurent then, Shea. Uh, Toyota Gazoo, Thomas Laurent, test and reserve driver for the next season of the WEC, which is our school year, starts in August and runs through till till June. Um, and he's only 21 years old. This is, in some ways, this is a real, um, uh, a real banner moment for him, but also for, for his career development. He's somebody who really has shot to fame over the last couple of years. I mean, think back to 2017, which is his first appearance at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Basically, the only information I could find on him before that one was that he was a karting champion. (laughs) And a lot of people had a really a lot of good things to say about him. Well, flash forward to the middle of the race. uh, Well, actually, the morning of the race being decided on that Sunday, his car was leading overall because the Porsche had faltered wound up winning the LMP2 class, wound up going on and having a really good championship season. So Thomas Laurent is a guy who has not only burst onto the scene, but he's done so in a spectacular fashion. And coming into this season with the ride in the LMP1 car with Rebellion, we knew to expect big things from him. He got a race win, remember, Silverstone, when both of the Toyotas were uh, excommunicated. Is that the word that we're using now? I, I quite like that. So for Thomas Laurent, it is a fantastic rise to fame, but completely deserved. Um, yeah, stuck in karting until he was 17 uh, when he jumped into uh, Asian Le Mans series with Jackie Chan DC Racing alongside Hope Tun and David Cheng. Then went into European Le Mans series. Then he went in LMP2 for JCDC in the Jota Sport 07 in 2017. Um, and he signed up with Rebellion, obviously, last year after a bit of a dispute. Um, that's, uh, uh, I mean, it's it's meteoric, but what it does do, Nick, is it proves the validity of, of those uh, regional series that we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think you know, we've had, um, I know Johnny even more than myself because he's, he's much close to the LMS, but we've had those moments where we've seen really cracking drives in Creventi or, or I remember a couple of drives just turning up out of nowhere um, in um, uh, the Abu Dhabi 12 hours as well. And you suddenly go, why haven't I heard this guy? Why? And, and suddenly, you know, literally later that year, they're, they're in a P2 and after that, they're on a you know development path that, that takes them all over the shop, you know, so... 
you know, I remember seeing people at Durrani several years ago in Dubai and going, wow, this guy's great. And suddenly he was a stalwart of IMSA and oh. everything else these days. Um, you know, I still think uh, Holland Cogneau, whose name I can't pronounce, has got big things coming to him as well uh, on the base of a, G, a, a P3 performance a couple of years ago in, in, Abu, in Abu Dhabi. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of very talented guys who are now obviously um, eschewing the single-seater route and are actually moving, you say, John, from the karting into a a, a, a touring car stroke um, P1, uh, sorry, prototype car environment and then, and they're now coming through that way so yeah and it's and it's quite nice to see them because you can say we saw them first <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely uh, right uh, nick i'm going to let you uh let you go and uh, enjoy your week where are you this weekend uh i am doing a family thing believe it or not oh, yeah. you just say um the uh, touring version of les miserables is brilliant it's i think better than the current west end version there we are okay Ooh, right okay. you need to know that you know you did no i did <laughs> I, I, I absolutely i absolutely did uh thanks nick and do we uh, do we have you next week uh what's next wednesday yeah i think so okay yeah. Not well, flying till Thursday. Not flying till Thursday, he says. Right, okay. Very good. Thanks, Nick. See you soon. Cheers, Thanks, bye. Bye. Uh, so, Nick Damon, who joined us tonight. Quick uh, couple of minutes. Uh, uh, share. Just We talked about this last week, uh, about uh, the IMSA at the weekend. Any? I mean, you know who's on the party plane uh, now, <laughs> don't you? Okay, so this is the plane that we need to jump on, John. Patrick Lindsay is the pilot in command. He will be taking across Patrick Long, no surprise there, Ranger van de Zanda, Pipo Durrani, Ollie Jarvis, Harry Tinknell, Jonathan Bomarito, Philippe Albuquerque, Ricky Taylor, and Larry Holt. I think that's the plane that we definitely need to try and sneak our way onto. Uh, uh, hell no, I want to try. <laughs> Actually, I've got a, I've got a daytime uh, I've got a daytime flight from Chicago, so yeah. I'm, I'm chilling out and I'll be listening. Uh, on the plane. Uh, I'll see you on Thursday then. I'll see you in Detroit. Yeah, see you there, Shea. Thank you. Shea uh, uh, Adam joining us uh, live tonight from Fort Lauderdale. Midweek Motorsport Series uh, 14, episode 21. Um, we'll have a final look at the uh, at the Twitter, at Specutainment. Your thoughts, please, on uh, the... ACO proposing, espousing, perhaps is a better word, success ballast for LMP1 for next season. Uh, no Tim tonight because he's been in France watching tennis. And, but well, I'm back now. How are you? All right, well done. Um, well, there's no need for you to say anything now because uh, earlier on this week, uh, you spoke to Will Buxton and Tim left this for us. Uh, Will, uh, as many people know, involved with the Formula One a broadcast for form is about uh, tomorrow. In fact, his, his book is about to come out. And most people, when they write a book about uh, motor racing, will write about the triumph. No, not Mr. Not Mr. Buxton. He's gone at it completely the other way. So here's Tim Gray with our big interview this week on Midweek Motorsport. Our big interview this week is with a Formula One journalist and author who will be familiar certainly to those of you in the States and less so to those of you in Europe. Uh, good evening to Will Buxton. Good evening. God, I'm, I'm an author now. It's terrifying, isn't it? You've got published books. I mean... I know. 
uh, and one book that's being published this very week, uh, which is called My Greatest Defeat. What's it about? So it is interviews with 20, um, well, this is, this is the thing, in the, in the blurb, it's 20 of uh, the greatest living uh, F1 drivers, although you know, sort of, very sadly it's only 19 now uh, because we lost uh, Nicky a week ago. So um, it's, it's stories of their lowest moments, um, which sounds awfully depressing and not like something you'd, you'd want to read, but it's actually about sort of triumph through adversity. It's, it's what those very low moments taught them uh, about themselves, how they fought through it, um, and how they came out the other side. And, and ultimately it's the lessons of of those moments um, and it's something that you know Nick, Nicky said uh, quite often I think which is that we learn more from our defeats uh, than from our victories and so that's the that's the overall sort of the, the arching story of the uh, of the book. Uh, as you say the title is is quite or sounds quite negative but it really is quite an uplifting and uh, inspiring book. I hope so I hope that's that's what people take from it you know each of these Races is a is a, a champion, a, a hero, somebody that we really look up to, and I think you know a lot of us struggle with our place in the world and whether we're on the right path. And um, we're being told increasingly that we should be or feel free to open up about it and talk to people about it. But there's still a stigma, in particular for, for for guys, about talking about when we struggle the most. And so my hope is that in seeing that these great heroes struggled um, and really wrestled with um, things that affect us all. There are stories in there of, of depression, of, of divorce, of, uh, addiction, and dependence. You know, they're, they're not necessarily racing stories, even though they are told by racing drivers. Um, and my hope is that if, if we can see these great heroes have struggled too, then it might allow us some peace with, with the, the struggles that we're going through uh, and to hopefully take inspiration from, from their lessons. Where did, where did the idea for the book come from? It came from, uh, I was on a flight, one of many, <laughs> taken over the year, and there was the, the brilliant Ford Ferrari uh, Le Mans documentary, um, and I did just sort of, it just it suddenly sort of hit me in the face that the, the, the best stories in our sport probably aren't the ones about the wins, they're about the losses and what makes people come back time and time again, um, you know, once you failed, what, what, what is it? What is that drive to, to keep coming back? And I thought the book was going to be, you know, about a race, uh, the, the, the race that, that the driver had lost, that they were, you know, bolted on to win, and then last lap the engine goes or something like that. I thought they were going to be those kind of stories. And then um, it was, it was actually Nicky uh, Lauder was the first uh, interview that I did, and I sat down and we ended up not talking about racing, not talking about '76 or even you know '77 and. You know, all that sort of mess at Ferrari. What 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 we actually ended up talking about was when he lost his uh, flight uh, when he ran louder air um, over Thailand, and 223 people on board were killed. And for eight months, he fought with Boeing for them to admit their culpability, which they finally did. Only after he sort of threatened to take them all up in the plane and slammed the reverse thruster on, and if they all came down alive, then great. It wasn't the plane that was at fault. Um, and obviously they didn't want to do that, and then they admitted fault. It's not just Formula One drivers. How did you choose no. who to include? It's tough. I had a I had a, a real wish list. Um, uh, you know, obviously we should do sort of across Formula One, NASCAR, IndyCar, really, and Le Mans. And uh, uh, I was really happy that pretty much all said yes 
straight away. Um, there were a couple that I really wanted that it just didn't work out with timing um, or whatever. Uh, AJ Foyt was one. The, the timing just didn't work out with AJ, which was a real shame. Um, but he was on board with it. We just, we just, we just couldn't quite get it done. Um, I'd really love to have included Pinelli Jones. Hopefully, if there's a second volume, then you know there are so many more that we can uh, hopefully go and include. Jackie X is another one I'd really love to to get in there. Um, I think what was most interesting were the the ones that turned it down were predominantly drivers who are still racing currently. I think only Jim Johnson and um, Felipe Massa are the only two that are currently racing. Um, and I think again because it's quite raw and it's drivers really um, showing fallibility. Um, the, the, the current drivers didn't quite want to let that chink in their armour out, um, which I think I can understand. I think we can all kind of understand that. It's you know, it's such a high-pressure scenario and situation and any perceptible weakness is exploited um, that sort of had they given that, that out, I can understand why they might not have wanted to. So was, are there any drivers who aren't still racing who just didn't like the concept and just said no? No, no, absolutely none. And and what was really amazing was how quickly it started, sort of started to to, um, to snowball, um, you know, with Nicky Lauda being the first one uh, and Derek Bell was on board quite early as well. Um, you know, when you sort of start to, to call people or email people and they say, well, who's, you know, who have you spoken to already? You say, well, I've spoken to Nicky and I've spoken to Derek and I've spoken to Carlos Sainz and, uh, you know, Nary Vatten is doing it. Well, I've, I've, I've just got an interview with Mario Andretti and I'm doing Emerson next week. And it was like, you know, it really quickly started to build up. And people like, oh, okay, great. Um, but, but the big surprise for me was, you know, in the guys that I, I knew quite well, I was still surprised with how open they were. It was the ones I didn't know so well or even hadn't met um, yet that when we started to talk and when they started to open up, how massively open they were and how it was almost a sort of a catharsis at points for them. That there was something that maybe they hadn't spoken about. They, they'd wanted to and it just all came out and there were lots of tears, um, which was massively surprising uh, for me you know um but i i, I think it i hope it it, it relays in the in the book that's just how sort of raw and, and emotional these guys these guys are well that was partly going to be my next question obviously a lot of these drivers you've known for over a decade some you mm. met for the first time while researching this book was it was it more difficult to get the the, the strangers as it were to open up to you this, this is a really weird thing. So I, I interviewed Uncle Bobby um, on the phone, and we were both in floods of tears uh, at one point of the interview. It was amazing. He was just so um, emotional talking about uh, his life and, and losing Jerry, and, and, and that was, it was huge. Um, Jeff Gordon was the biggest surprise for me. Um, it, was so, it was so crazy. I, uh, I had actually emailed... Um, Marshall Pruitt that morning and said, have you got a phone number or a contact for Jeff Gordon? I really need to contact him. And I was at the Singapore Grand Prix, and as I was walking through the paddock, not an hour and a half later, I had a, a tap on my shoulder, and it was Jeff Gordon. And I was like, oh, well, well Jeff, you know, I'd never met him before. And he was like, hey, well, you know, I'm like, I recognize you from the scene, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, did Marshall email you? He's like, no, why? And it, so it was just completely random sounds that we were 
in the same place at the same time. And I said, look, I'm writing this book and this is what it's about. And he goes, oh, my God, I'm, I'm in. I'm, I'm absolutely in. Like, I, I, I love the sound of it. It sounds great. And we started talking and uh, Jeff's story just resonated with me immediately. You know, going in and doing these interviews, I couldn't research any of them because I never knew what they were going to talk about. I just had to sit and have a chat. And, and you know, I, I would apologize before we started if I asked any dumb questions that would, should seem obvious. But because I hadn't been able to research, because I never knew if they were going to talk about racing or personal life or whatever else, um, you know, we were sort of going in blind to them all. Um, but Jess was crazy because we got out of it and we were both in, like, massive hug at the end and it was really emotional. And he said, I know why I'm emotional. Why are you emotional? And I said, just uh, with the exception of the four weeks to come, we've had a very similar life. <laughs> and so that was really nice. Did, uh, did you change your opinion of any of the drivers based on the interviews you did for the book? Yeah, massively. Uh, Alan Prost. Uh, I changed my opinion of him massively. You know, I was always an Ernst of fan. And, um, and, you know, and, and Prost has always painted as being quite sort of manipulative and, and divisive. And actually, when, when you talk to him about, you know, he, he, he spoke about uh, sort of the loss of, of friends as a racing driver, but also about, you know, the infamous, uh, moments at uh, uh, at Ricard uh, and again um, with uh, with Ayrton at uh, at Imola, and it's it's really for Alain. It was he'd been made a promise, and he perceived that that promise wasn't upheld. And whether the rights or the wrongs of it, you can see it from the other perspective. In his mind, he was wronged, and. That was something that he found very, very difficult to deal with. And when I started to see it from his perspective, and as he still views it, you can understand why he acted the way he did, why he made the decisions that he did, and how he became so hard-nosed about it. Because that, you know, when somebody gives you their word, that, that sort of that moral bond, and they break it, it means so much to him that you can see why it affected him so much. So I really, I, I, did I change my opinion of, of Prost? Yes, but I think because I didn't really know him, um, because I'd always, uh, I'd had an opinion based on on uh, mis, mis, misconception, I guess. And conversely, were there, were there any who have uh, gone down in your estimation? <laughs> no. No, absolutely none, um, and that's the that's the wonderful thing with this. You know, I, I esteem them all so so highly, and for them to then uh, be open and raw and honest um, just allowed me a, a huge uh, insight into them, and and allowed me to better understand them, uh, what they've been through, and and actually to appreciate all the more what they've achieved. Uh, and I hope it does that for for the readers too. The way in which it's it's written is an invitation for the reader to literally just pull up a chair and sit at the table with us and be part of the conversation. I haven't tried to um, give it any slant. I haven't tried to um, come to any conclusions about what's discussed. That, I hope, is for the reader to take and for them to form their own opinions and their own uh, conclusions at the end of it because we all learn different things from uh, from you know what life throws at us. And so my hope is that these stories... Some might resonate with people, some might not, but the ones that do, hopefully they can take something out of them. You mentioned earlier Nicky Lauda and how 
after all the things he went through in his racing career, mm. he spoke not about motorsport at all, but about the louder air crash. Uh, yeah. Are there any other drivers featured in this who you look at their name and you think they're going to talk about this, and actually that's not what they spoke about at all? Totally. I, I, you know, Alex Zanardi is a prime example. You think Alex, in talking about you know, triumph over adversity, you think he's going to talk about losing his legs and going on to being a Paralympian. Um, and he actually, his worst moment, he said, was going to um, Williams in 1999, leaving Champ Car behind and going back to Formula One and the disaster that that turned out to be. And it wasn't the, his lowest moment because of the lack of success. It's because in hindsight, he looks back on it now and realizes that he made a decision based on his ego at the time and based on his ambition rather than his passion. And so it then developed into this really sort of philosophical chat about, well, how do we know, you know, whether we're following our ambition or our passion? And do we ever know that? Do we only ever see it in hindsight? And what affects that? And how do we how do we determine between the two? Um, and it was fascinating. You know what Alex is like. He's such a great conversationalist. And so to, you know, to have that very... Sort of expansive conversation with him um, was was just mega, um, absolutely lovely. Just you know, sort of sitting in his home, sipping espresso, um, debating the finer points of life and why we do what we do. It was, it was great. Uh, now, uh, it's not just the words in the book. There's some uh, beautiful illustrations as well uh, mm. by someone who many people won't know of their motor sport association because it's uh giuseppe camancoli who's a, a marvel comic book artist but he yeah. he does have uh, a massive link with formula one doesn't he um, he's, he's done a couple of posters for ferrari and uh and stuff he, and he lives sort of half an hour down the road from uh from Marino, <laughs> which is um but yeah he he came on board very very early when um I'd really only just come up with the idea for the book and I thought I was probably going to have to self-publish. Um, and so I knew I wouldn't be able to afford photography and I illustrations would be the best way to go. And um, a contact that I had made through social media, someone who followed me and I ended up following them and was uh, uh, one of the main PR guys for, for Warner Brothers and deals with a lot of their um, sort of graphic novel movies and cartoons and um I approached him and said, you, you've got to help me out, mate. I'm, I really need to find an illustrator. And he said, leave it with me. And apparently just walked into Marvel Studios and said, um, uh, guys, uh, does anybody here like motorsport? And sure enough, Camo put his hand up and said, uh, you know, this is this, this is the thing and, and this is who it's for. And, and Camo said, oh, well, the guy from NBC Sports. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, no, yeah, no, I know. Well, I know. I know. I know. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, cool. So, so we got in contact and, and he came on board right from the off, uh, just like the idea. And each chapter starts just with an illustration of that driver uh, in the present day, sort of, you know, old and haggard and looking back on their life. And were they done from photographs or were they done from sort of... They were they were done from, from photographs, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they, they didn't fit uh, for them. Uh, I uh, had sort of... Uh, a mass of long photographs as we chose to uh, to give a decent impression of uh, of the driver, and they uh, which is actually for for some of them a lot harder than you, than you might think. Um, and uh, and yeah, I think he's done a, a wonderful job. I, I couldn't be prouder with the way it looks. You mentioned earlier 
uh, possibility of a sequel. Who do you, who would you include in a sequel? Oh goodness! Well, I mean, I'd love to include. As I've already said, you know, like Jackie X and uh, and Parnell Jones and AJ Foyt. I would love. I think I'd like to put Michelle Mouton in there because um, I think that uh, if it's lacking one thing, it's a female voice, um, and she's you know such a megastar and and so so respected and so good in her field. Um, you know, the thing, the great thing is that there is, there are so many great races out there, so many, uh, brilliant stories. And my hope would be that if we do a second volume that, um, you know, we can just go out and, and use this and say, here's what we did for the first one. Would you like to come on board and just, just totally open it up, uh, to anybody and basically for anybody that wants to be a part of it and wants to tell their story and, you know, feels like sharing that. That's it. It's a big thing to do because it's scary to open yourself up and to make yourself vulnerable. Um, but it's it's such a strong thing to do as well because it's ultimately, you know, having a good cry can be a really good help. Have any of the uh, the subjects of the book re- uh, had a chance to read the book and read the other contributors yet and given you any feedback about how their story fits in with the others or is it too early no so i i only got to put the books in the post on monday um so they are sort of flying their way out to everybody as we speak um and some of the feedback i'd already had from from some of the drivers was how much they were looking forward to reading it to that very point they wanted to see how their story fitted in with with the others and they wanted to read what the other um, people in in the book had said and and what their experiences had been and that's you know something wonderful I think about about the sport as well and about the interview subjects is is how interested they are in their contemporaries um, whether they were rivals or whether they were from other areas of the sport because they wanted to learn about them and know about them and, and what had driven them uh, so the book's out this week, Will. Uh, it's called My Greatest Defeat. Uh, you'll find it in all good bookshops and on uh, all good websites as well. Uh, Will Indeed. Buxton, thank you very much. Thank you so much for your time, mate. Really great to chat. Big interview this week with Will Buxton. My Greatest Defeat is out tomorrow, in fact, on Thursday, if you're listening to this live. So it's uh, the last day of the month you're listening to midweek motorsport series 14 episode 21 we'll finish off with some more of your uh, tweets uh, on the big story tonight which broke just before we came on air uh, this is the aco contemplating success ballast for the 2019-2020 season of wec oliver giles saying uh, when competing against audi and porsche toyota still demonstrated a high level of professionalism every season. Maybe WEC needs to find that balance between the financial resources that brings track performance. GT3 regulations and race formats are a great example. Uh, I'm not sure that mm. I agree with you there, Oliver, because that's um, that's a full BOP formula. And, you know, look what it brings you. Um, it brings you the most predictable race ever in the 24 hours of Spa. That's a good race spoiled, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, everybody has the same amount of fuel, everybody does the same amount of pits, uh, same amount of laps, pit stops are controlled, even your long pit stops are controlled. Mm, not sure, not sure that that helps. 
to be honest. Spooner in Orange says, no point in success ballasting when there are so few cars. We are looking at a likelihood of even lower grids in the top class as we move uh, into the next couple of seasons. We might have a couple more. Uh, depends whether Toyota stay or go, of course. The answer has to be to develop a framework that gets more cars on grid, even if it means added an alternative to class from another successful series, he says. As a spooner in orange, uh, whilst being um, a little bit cryptic there and not seeing which one it is. And Matt Hunter has uh, joined us. Hello, Matt. Nice to hear you're tuned in. Uh, next Torah coming up uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow night, Torah Radio Show. Thank you, Tim. Uh, and so just seen Will tweeting about his new book. I'm really looking forward to reading it. Well, you'll be able to do that from uh, tomorrow. Weather for the weekend at Le Mans is pretty good. And we'll be on the air on Sunday all day for the only live coverage of Test Day of any broadcaster. Don't go looking for pictures because there aren't any. Uh, but we will be live on RSL 1. It is uh, Radio Le Mans, which is Mobile 1 Radio Le Mans, 91.2 FM at the track. Use the hashtag mobile, then the number one, RLM, if you don't mind. But before all that, uh, the uh, Friday and Saturday on RS2, uh, we will be live from Belle Isle, Detroit. Beautiful Belle Isle, Detroit. I've uh, been there and it uh, was beautiful. Yeah, good. Excellent. Well, Belle Isle was. The rest yeah. of Detroit is... It's getting there. It's getting back. Uh, it, 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 it messes up my... Um, internal gyros when I go to Detroit because you, you, you're looking south to, to, Canada. to Canada. It's just not right, is it? Uh, so uh, I'm off on American Airlines tomorrow. Hopefully they'll look after me uh, and I'll be back next week. Hopefully your time. flight won't be as retarded as mine was. Yeah, I, I did tell you when you told me what time you were coming back, I said, mm, all you need... And guess what happened? Uh, it shows that if it had been on time, I would have made the show comfortably. Uh, thanks very much to Will Buxton and to, good luck with the boot by the way, my greatest defeat, and to Nick and Shea for joining me earlier on. Uh, we'll be back next week, 8 o'clock, when we'll be talking about everything's happened at the weekend. And look out for some Le Mans preview programmes coming up as well mm. in the near future. But we won't even be thinking about sitting down and talking about that until after the weekend so keep an eye on the schedule at radio-show.co.uk there's no time to explain the llama is in a fiat ducato luton van on the way to le mans this program is a radio show limited production tell your friends there's more at radiolemon.com